Please be seated and good morning. It has almost become a cliche today for preachers and politicians alike to declare that we are living in perilous times. But the simple reality is we are living in perilous times. It seems to be a hallmark of the age in which we live that we go from one troubling period or incident to another. And when I say troubling, I mean troubling on a grand global scale. Those of you who are of a certain age will remember that we scarcely had time to truly relish the sense of well-being that came about 30 years ago with the collapse of, the so of Soviet communism, for example, when our nation and the world were then rocked with 9-11 and the ongoing dire threat of Islamic terrorism that that incident embodied. Then on to the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine, which today threatens to explode into a third world war. In our gospel reading this morning, we hear the ominous words of Jesus as he prophesied perilous times to come. In this passage from Luke chapter 21, Jesus was actually making reference to two separate events, one upcoming in the near future from the time in which he spoke, and one upcoming in the distant future. The near future event, which Jesus describes in verse 6, was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem at the time of this account, and some of them were admiring and commenting on the beauty and the grandeur of the temple of Solomon. And who wouldn't? From a purely aesthetic and architectural standpoint, the temple was an awesome sight. At the time that Jesus spoke, the temple had been undergoing a major restoration for the past 46 years under Herod the Great, <clears throat> a restoration that would take another 30 years to complete. But even in its partially restored state, the temple was the epicenter and the visible symbol of all that it meant to be Jewish in the first century AD. It was the focal point not only of Jewish religious life, but also of the Jews' security and of their entire identity as a nation. In area, the temple was roughly four times larger than today's typical NFL stadium. Think about that. Four times larger than an NFL stadium Excuse me. The exterior of the temple was crafted of white marble, of which many observers of the day said that when the sun shone on it, from a distance it looked like a mountain of snow. One entire interior wall was fashioned out of solid gold, and the number and variety of jewels used in the construction is almost beyond description. No wonder the disciples marveled. But their marveling must have quickly turned to shock and disbelief when Jesus told them that a day would come when there would not be one stone of the temple left standing upon another. Jesus, you can't be serious, 
Do you have any idea what it took to build this place? The time, the money, the effort? Have you noticed how mammoth it is? Not one stone standing upon another? Come on, how is that possible? And besides, this is where Messiah will sit upon the throne of David forever. Now, of course, St. Luke doesn't record any of those protests. But I suspect that many, if not all, of the disciples were thinking something along those lines when Jesus spoke those words to them. In reality, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled just 40 years later when the Roman army under General Titus, who was soon to be the Emperor Titus, sacked the city of Jerusalem and utterly destroyed and leveled the temple in 70 AD. So the near future event, event Jesus prophesied was the destruction of the temple. The distant future event of which he spoke was his own second coming. And notice in verse 8 that the very first thing that Jesus warned about in the end times scenario was the emergence of false messiahs. Many of you are old enough to recall that our recent history has had no shortage of these. From Sun Young Moon, to Jim Jones, to Lord Maitreya, to David Koresh, and other countless cult leaders emerging all over the world on a regular basis, even today. Jesus says simply, do not go after them. Do not follow them. And as we read on in the prophecy of the last days, verses, verse 10 and following, it would seem that all of these things of which Jesus spoke have already taken place, and possibly never with as much intensity as the age in which you and I are living today. The 20th century, the century recently ended, was one that was characterized by amazing technological and economic advancement. But it was also characterized by the two deadliest wars in the entire history of mankind. It has been estimated that more people died in the wars and genocides of the 20th century than were actually living on the entire planet in Jesus' day. A century that saw a greater accumulation of knowledge and information than had been seen in all previous centuries of recorded history combined saw much of that knowledge put to use in devising more and more sophisticated ways to kill, more devious ways to cheat and steal, and more heinous ways to propagate ungodliness. And a century that witnessed an effort to evangelize the world with the gospel to an extent rivaled only by the first century church has seen the world dig itself deeper and deeper into a pit of vileness and immorality and a world which persecutes Christians in greater number than at any time in history. It's no wonder that our culture is so schizophrenic. And by the way, speaking of the persecution of Christians, you may have heard the staggering statistic that says that more Christians have died for the faith in the 20 and 21st centuries than in all 
previous centuries combined. And are you aware of how the secular cultural elite have unleashed a barrage of insults and condemnation against Christians in general and against the Catholic Church in particular? Their resentment and their antipathy have exploded in a wave of anti-Christian, anti-church rhetoric and even attacks on churches that is unprecedented in the history of our nation. Be aware and be prepared because left unchecked, this resentful rhetoric will begin to manifest itself in initiatives that further restraint and oppression of the free exercise of the Christian faith in America. Notice how easily during the pandemic Government at every level was only too willing to declare churches non-essential organizations and simply shut us down. I believe that was only the opening barrage. So then getting back to Jesus' prophecy, notice the tone of what the Lord says throughout this prophecy. Two things of note. Take heed that you are not led astray and do not be terrified. Take heed that you are not led astray and do not be terrified. And in the midst of all of this prophecy about trials and tribulations, Jesus speaks what is perhaps the most significant sentence in this entire passage. Verse 13, this will be a time for you to bear testimony. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. The time that Jesus is referring to, of course, is the whole scenario of wars and commotions, of nation rising against nation, of great earthquakes and famines and pestilences and terrors and great signs from heaven, and even the persecution of believers. All of these things, Jesus says, will turn out for us, for you and me, as an opportunity to bear testimony. Why is that? Because all of these things which strike fear into people's hearts give those who are grounded in a personal faith in the one true and living God and his, in his son Jesus Christ and in his church and in the perspective of eternity, it gives all of us an opportunity to bear living witness to the love and mercy of Almighty God. And isn't that an integral part of the church's calling on earth? To bring God's presence and God's grace and God's truth to bear in every situation and circumstance, even, by the way, when it means extending God's mercy and love to the very people who would persecute us. <clears throat> Times of crisis and uncertainty have a tendency to evoke questions and anxieties in people's minds and hearts that only the church, as the faithful steward of the truth of God, can answer. In St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul makes a comment here on his calling and, by extension, the calling 
of every Christian in the world today. He says that calling is this, to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Notice, he says, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. And so our call as disciples is now as always to present Jesus, to bring Jesus to a world that is in desperate need of him, but which by and large doesn't even recognize its own desperate need. There's a growing sense of urgency building in the earth, an urgency born of the acceleration of time and of the unprecedented magnitude of world events. In our Old Testament reading from the book of the prophet Malachi this morning, just a little further on, Malachi says this, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. A few verses later, Malachi makes reference to this great and terrible day of the Lord. What is that day? What is that day that Malachi is prophesying? The very same day prophesied by Jesus in the verses immediately following this morning's gospel when he says in verse 27, quote, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory when, as we profess in the creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. We don't know if that day will be tomorrow or a thousand years from now, although I suspect it will be much closer to the former than to the latter. But the timing of that event is not what matters. What matters is that the state of our, uh, is the state of our souls when it does happen. So brothers and sisters, let's you and I commit in the days and weeks and months ahead as events continue to unfold in our nation, in the world, and in the church, and in our own individual and collective lives, let's commit that we will not ever adopt a business-as-usual attitude. We will view emerging events, including the profound shaking that events like 9-11 and the pandemic represented for our world. Let's commit that we will always view them through the eyes of the Spirit and through the eyes of faith. And we will respond to the anxiety and the uncertainty that such events create by doing what we can to further the kingdom of God on earth. First, in our own hearts and lives, and then in the hearts and lives of everyone we know. And, let the, and let's let that commitment be an abiding one, a lasting one, to be the Lord's amb ambassadors, to be conduits of his grace, mercy, and love every day until he returns or until we go home to heaven 
to be with him. I want to close this morning with the words of St. Paul in yet another reference to the Lord's return. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, St. Paul writes this, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men, as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.